Welcome to the Taking a Breath Podcast with Parker Mays. All right, welcome back everybody to this week's episode of the Taking a Breath Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This week I'm excited because I have someone on today who I've been learning from for the past 20 years. Um, My parents were close friends with him and his wife um, back even before I was born and so have been privileged to call him Uncle George. Um, George Kenley is joining me today. Um, George has spent most of the last 23 years um, working for a variety of technical companies represented or based here in North Carolina. And he's currently an engineering program manager at Red Hat, also based here in Raleigh. Uh, George re-entered the civilian workforce back in 1997 after retiring from the U.S. Marine Corps with more than 24 years in military communication, data, electronics, and project and program management. He completed his military career at the rank of major, concurrently holding the rank of Chief Warrant Officer 5 after beginning as an enlisted radar and computer technician during the Vietnam era. So Uncle George, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited just to be able to have a conversation. Would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit more about you. Thanks, Parker. Well, I'll I'll keep it brief because you and I do like to gab. So uh, I'm a son of the South, and except for five years um, that I lived in Japan and five and a half years in California, I've spent my entire life in the South. A total of nine states, um, many of them multiple times. I moved 20 times during my 24 years in the Marines, 20 20 relocations during those 24 years. Um, I'm a son. I'm a brother. I have two siblings. I'm a husband. I'm a retired veteran and a credentialed project and program manager. I visited over 40 countries for both business and pleasure. And from that, I can say that I've learned that the United States is by far the greatest country on the face of the earth. Incredible. Yeah, so I'm excited just to dive in a little bit to some of your experience over the years. I want to start off because I think uh, your experience in the Marine Corps from some of the travels that we've gotten to do together um, and just all of the stories that you've told over the years, I think there, there's just an incredible uh, learning experience and something that's really unique um, to each individual. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what makes the Marine Corps so unique and the culture that is created within the program? Well, to set the stage for personal reasons that we don't have time to go into here, and I don't know that a lot of your listeners would care about, I, I joined five months out of high school at the age of 17. I was five foot 10 and 120 pounds. I was a small man, not even a man. I was a small boy. And I did it because I was, in my mind, not ready for college. It would have been a waste of my money or my father's money and my time. And I needed to get out on my own and start making decisions. Bear with me because I'm setting the stage. I needed to mature. And I couldn't think of a better place to go where you get mature very quickly is in the Marines. And I found that in boot camp. We were the first all-volunteer series of uh, platoons and my platoon was 88 men one-third of them were former army air force and navy who were going back through basic training to become marines you can only become a marine if you go through our boot camp or our training so they had to go back to basic training again and many of them were combat veterans and i was the second smallest and the second youngest in the platoon and i matured very quickly physically and mentally 
I basically, I forced my parents to allow me to enlist during the Vietnam era against their will. But it was probably, and my father told me later, many years later, he said it was probably the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, I was trained to be a computer and radar technician. And right after, I, I, I found education religion in boot camp. And as soon as all my year plus of training was over, I started studying for my, my first college degree which the military paid for. I earned three degrees in the military, the last one being an MBA. The second degree was an HR degree, my undergraduate, because I knew I had to retire at some point or leave the military, so I wanted to learn what HR was like because there was going to be a big transition. And I, and, and I think it, for, for me, going through the Marine Corps was a, a, a 40-year. When I, when I retired at age 41, it was a 24-year maturing process. The Marine Corps is, is a cult. I have come to believe that the Marine Corps is a cult and it's probably one of the most effective cults. And I say that with a little bit of humor and I say it judiciously because you take um, young men and women and you train them to be aggressive war fighters and you train them in their jobs in the Marine Corps. But what you want to do more than anything else is make sure that when the tough gets going that they're ready to be tough and carry the fight to the enemy. It's, it's a culture of leadership. From the very beginning, the people who have the ability to lead are called out and expected to lead or they're put back and the next person's called out. And for those of you who don't know, um, it's an up or out culture. If you don't get promoted by the second time you're able to be promoted, you're put out of the military not just the Marine Corps, all branches. So it's an up or out organization. If you cannot lead, if you cannot be productive in the military, it, it is a self-cleansing organism that, that ejects the people who are not the good leaders, who are not the good performers. And supposedly the cream rises to the top. Not always. We, we, you know, it, it's an organization with its own problems like any other. But for the most part, some of the best leaders I've met in my entire life I met in the Marine Corps. I know that there's a saying that, uh, and I know that it's a lot of, it's very valuable to you is that for the Marines, there are only battles won. And I, I've read about this before and you've mentioned it in the past, but what does that mean to you and to Marines? There's a, a huge controversy that will erupt when people question that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be so, naive or stringent to say that we've never lost a battle. Of course we've lost battles. I mean, positions have been overrun. There was a 40-man, I mean, one of the best examples of, of the fact that we've, we've not won every single fight is that there was a 40-man task force that surrendered in Korea. Now, when you read the, the description of what happened is the commander of the, the task force surrendered to the Chinese only if he could get assurances that his wounded would be cared for. Otherwise, he said, we'll fight to the last man. And so he did it from a leadership position to save the lives of, the, of those men who could not fight for themselves. And so for the Marines, there's only battles won. In his mind, it was a battle won because he fought, fought as long as he could until he, he had to surrender to save those who could not fight for themselves. The Battle of Fallujah, if you're not familiar with it, go look it up. It's the battle that the Marines won in Iraq in the second war on, in Iraq, and it was taken over by the Marines after the Army attempted to take the city. Um, it is probably the one that is, 
has the most stigma for us in the last decade or so because our killed and wounded was so high, but the city was taken. And it's part of our ethos to say that there's not much that we can't do on the battlefield if we're given the tools to do it. So we look forward, we look ahead to the next battle, always remembering how we conducted ourselves in our previous battles. And I think the one thing to remember is that unlike most other branches, Marines know that if there's any possible way, if they fall in battle, whether killed or wounded, their fellow Marines will get them off the field of battle. That is just one thing that we do. We do not leave our fallen behind, killed or wounded. And so we can revel in the fact that the battles are won, even if some are actually lost, because we fight with and for our fellow Marines, and not necessarily for the politics that might have driven us onto the field of battle. I'm curious. So there's such a, uh, the, the culture in the Marines, like you mentioned with bringing off the dead soldiers is this culture of, of really standing brother to brother beside each other. And, and this is something that you've really emphasized over the years is what do you think are, are some of the ways that that is really driven into Marines and into soldiers well, in general? And yeah, not just the Marines, but I think it's probably more extreme in the Marines than you'll find in the Army, and then, then consecutively more so than the Navy and then the Air Force, but everybody's treated the same. There's, you will, well, when I was in, I can't say now, but I, I doubt, I would imagine that identity politics are marginalized in the military. You can't have it and expect there to be discipline on the field of battle. For a three-year period when I was in California, I worked with a black Marine and a Hispanic Marine. He was a, the first was a captain. The second was a lieutenant. In fact, the lieutenant was captured and held by um, the Iranians back in 1979. And I met him in the early 90s when we all wound up at the same air station out in California working together. We're colorblind. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your race, read, religion, your, your, your sex, it, it doesn't really matter because you're only there for the mission. And when things get tough and you're with your unit and you're even when you're not in combat, when you're in cadre, just doing your day-to-day -day activities, the people beside you are the ones who mean the most because you're working to further the mission that all of you are trying to complete on a day-to-day -day basis. I always think back to those 88 men in my platoon and boot camp, and that was the first time I really felt part of a family outside of the family I was born into, but it didn't, I mean, I came from the South. I grew up in Jim Crow, in the days of Jim Crow, and, and really saw the really unacceptable um, way that black Americans were treated. But in boot camp at 17, my bunkie was a black Marine. It was unthinkable to me, and I got over it really quick because I had to. I shed a lot of the things that I was that I was that were put into me as I grew up because you can't. These people were my brothers and sisters and still are in in the service in the Marines and in the military as a whole. But you literally are when the bullets start to fly or when things go to hell and the mission gets tough, everybody's brothers and sisters in uniform. And that is the way it's it's been and I'm I'm hoping that's the way it always will be. Do you think there are things that people that aren't in the service could take away 
that they could be learning to be treating the people around them like what you're talking about? Or do you really feel like it's uniquely the mission that you guys are on? No, I think that's a great question. When you asked me to do this, I thought back to the one thing that was, when I became a corporal in 1975 and I was 19 years old, I was taken aside by my NCOs and my staff non-commissioned officers, and I was treated differently because now I had responsibility and a certain legal responsibility over the, the, the people who were junior to me. And even though I had been exposed to the 14 leadership traits and the 11 leadership principles that were beat into us in boot camp, almost literally, I had to live by them and not just talk the talk. I had to walk the talk with the people that I was going to give proficiency and conduct marks to. I mean, so at the age of 19, um, as a as a young corporal, a young non-commissioned officer in the Marines, I was supervising, managing, and leading Marines. And that never changed from that day to the day that I retired as, a, as an active duty Marine major. I became more senior in rank and had more people. At one point, I was managing 400 electronics technicians and, and contract civilian engineers. But the way that I treated them never changed. And the way that I treated and looked at all of the people around me, Marines and civilians, never changed. And I think that that's one of the things that I think that can be taken away and is should be, I would think, transferable is that you only treat people the way that you want to be treated. I wanted to be treated like a Marine. I treated Marines like Marines. I want to be treated as a productive, contributing member of Red Hat and the American workforce, same thing. That's how I treat my people at Red Hat. Everybody I come in contact to, I treat the same. Because, And, and to be honest with you, I, I reviewed those 14 leadership traits and the, and the 11 principles. They are as iconic today in the way I do my work as they were when I first read them in my little red book in boot camp when they gave it to me and said, memorize this, you know. It, nothing's changed, Parker, nothing. That's incredible. And, and a great transition to what I, what I wanted to talk about in terms of where you're at now in, in Red Hat and with business. What are some of the things that you have taken away from your time in the Marines and now really strongly influences the way you lead and the way you're you know, doing your program management you know, on a day-to-day -day basis now in business? Well... One of the things that I always think about, Red Hat pays its its <laughs> Red Hat pays its bonuses quarterly. So every every quarter I get a bonus, and I always think back to the 24 years I was in the Marines that there were no bonuses, and the pay was never commensurate with the amount of work that we did, or you know what what we did for the American people through our activities in the military. Most of the bases I were on had been built in the 30s, if not before that. So the surroundings were obviously not opulent but um post-military in the civilian world i worked in some of the really nicest buildings i've ever seen and and i found it i found it interesting that a lot of my counterparts in the civilian world complained about the environment that they lived in and i distinctly remember one day when someone asked me about it it was like you know isn't this the worst building you've ever worked in and i'm like you're asking the wrong person i mean i i 
I go do my job in the military and, and I'm living in a canvas 20 man tent with 19 other people. And we're eating with a dirt floor, eating cold food because they couldn't get the ovens on that day and no hot water for the showers. I, this is the best environment I've ever worked in. I, I think that, I think that a lot of Americans take things for, for granted. I think that there's a lot of things going on in the country that, that, that are taken for granted. I think the tech industry and a lot of people who are in, fortunate enough to work in the environment that I work in don't understand the, the, the span of, of how some people are getting by in America compared to how we're doing. There's a lot of money in the tech industries you know, all the different types of tech industry. So it, the things that I brought to me, I brought with me, one of them is humility because I think some days I wonder how did I go from being that private in boot camp with just a high school education to here doing this, working one of the best global country companies in the world. And I, it's just, I, I feel thankful a lot for where I have subtypes. That's one of the things that, that takes me, back in my mind, I'm focused on the mission. It has nothing to do with my self-interest. That's one of the things I brought from the Marines into all the companies I've worked for is that it's not about me, it's about the company. It's about facing off our competitors. Maybe at times I have been a little bit too aggressive about that, but at the same time, I know that our, our competitors would put us out of business in a heartbeat so they could dominate the markets we all compete in. So. You know, it is kind of corporate warfare, which I've lectured at times to people when they ask me, how do I view things? It's warfare. It's corporate warfare. But it is the same thing. It's just using different tools to compete in, in a playing field. By looking at it that way, I try to be as competitive as humanly possible and make the best contribution I can make to make my company the most competitive they can. That's what I bring from the military. I'm curious because we've talked about this, right? And you've been in business for um, several, you know, uh, multiple decades now. What do you, what would you say separates you from some of the other business leaders, especially in today's business world? Well, I mentioned it briefly before, and that was the mission. I found a lot of people that I've worked with in business and I don't condemn them for it because growing up, in a purely civilian environment, and I'm not saying the military is the way to go, the military is not right for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And, and I'm not saying it's the only way to go, but it's given me a different perspective. But I, I believe that one of the things that has helped me is that when you're in the military, whatever the mission is at the moment, and it's on a day-to-day -day basis, but it changes depending on what's happening, what's required of you, is that you're focused on finishing that mission. There's a lot of distractions in today's business world. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of things that go on that can distract you from getting your job done, no matter how involved it is or how broad it is or how narrow it is, how detailed it might be. And one of the things that I've always tried to stay focused on is the mission and not because it would be advantageous to me, but it would be advantageous to the company. I think that I've, I've, I've run into a number of people who they want the company to succeed, but it's to their, their benefit, their stock, their 401k. It's all about getting ahead financially. And, and obviously finances never, you know, money has never been a motivator for me. It is for some people I know and some good friends I know too. I don't hold it against anybody. 
But I didn't stay in the military for two and a half decades because I was going to get rich. Far from it. But I've never gone to work at any company just because of the compensation left. I've, I've actually left one company where I was, in my mind, obscenely compensated because my options and opportunities were limited and I was actually being treated rather poorly from a leadership perspective. So I decided to leave. I don't regret that one day because I don't do this for the financial gain. I do it because I would like to consider that the things that I do make a contribution to a company that's making a contribution to America and the world. And I want to work for people who will recognize me for the potential I have, put it to work and treat me fairly and work for good leaders. And I won't stay at a place where, where I don't find that. I, I'm kind of treating the people where I've worked and the companies where I've worked kind of like the, the military treats its people. If you can't show you're a good leader and or you're productive, it ejects you. In my mind, if you can't show me where you can put me to work and make me productive for yourself and the world and the country, and you can't leave me, I'm going to go find someplace else. And I did. And I think that's kind of what separates me from people, from some, a lot of other people I've met in, in the civilian world. And I brought that from the military. I hope that answers your question. Definitely. And I love the emphasis of really valuing your time, but also valuing the leaders that are in your life, because I think that's so important and something that you know, especially young people, uh, as we're kind of shifting to that, uh, it's something that a lot of young people struggle with. A, self-worth has become an insanely uh, big problem for young people today because of because <laughs> yes. of social media, insecurity, seeing, comparing themselves oh, to yeah. people. Uh, and I talk about that a lot with a lot, a lot of the younger leaders. I'm curious because um, for those who don't know, um, Uncle George works with at NC State, the Shelton Leadership Challenge, um, which is a, a program for, correct me if I'm wrong, 15 to 18 year old students? Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, rising freshmen through graduating seniors. We've had a, 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 probably a double handful of seniors over the five years I've done it. Um, after they've graduated from high school, but it's it's rising freshmen through graduating seniors. Yep, go ahead. Got it. And so essentially through high school um, where they're, they're learning and developing and essentially the idea of the program is they're coming, you know, it's, it's kind of like camp in my mind, right? They stay at NC State it's in the camp. dorms. It's a, it's a camp um, specifically yeah. focused on leadership. I've worked with the program and some of the people closely in the program through, um, as you guys know, the Impact Leadership Village that I was a part of for two years. Um, so I have a lot of love for the program. I'm curious, Uncle George, from your perspective, seeing and working with these young leaders and developing, what in your mind are some things that you're seeing young people bringing out into the world today as they're developing through these um, stages of young adulthood? Well, that's interesting. So to put things in perspective, I, I came of age before there were any personal computers, no mobile phones, no tablets. There was no internet. There was no distractions like we have today, but then we also didn't have large data. I mean, the, the world is, is quickly becoming driven by data analysis. And I think that the emerging youthful leaders that I've seen and actually one in particular that I hired back in 2010, 10 years ago, and she's actually a, a leadership instructor in the Red Hat Shelton Challenge with me. She's a, a very fine example of this, that 
these emerging leaders are all coming of age in a digital culture. And I believe that notwithstanding the, un- the upcoming election, these emerging leaders, these people who, who matriculate through this program and others and this woman that I know, they're going to determine America's success or failure in the business world. I've managed to maintain my relevance in this changing environment, but these six, I mean, we get 60 kids per camp, and I think we do three, four, five, six, about eight camps at three different sites every summer for the Shelton Challenge. And, and I strongly recommend it for any rising high school student of any of the four grades to take if they can, because we put them in a situation where they are on their own. There's no friends. There's no family other than the people that they meet, and rarely do they know anybody at the camp with them because they come all from all over the region. And in fact, we had a boy get his family to fly him from Egypt just so he could attend the camp in my first year that I took it, which was astounding to say the least. But these young people demonstrate to me that when they're put in a position where it's all on them to make the decisions, they rise to the occasion and before the end of the week, they have learned to become a cohesive group. It reminds me so much of my boot camp experience in the Marines because you're throwing so many people together in a much less volatile environment, I'll be the first to admit. But you're throwing a bunch of people together, and by Wednesday or Thursday, they've started to cohese into a team that can do just about anything. And no matter what anybody says about Gen X, Y, or Z or beyond, I don't see any difference between these young people than what I was like when I was 17 in 1973. It's not, it isn't changing. Only their abilities to work with technology and the digital culture that they live in, their surroundings are changing, but the human ability to interact with other humans when given the right setting, that's not changing. They're just as good as we were back in in boot camp in 1973, if not better. They'll be better educated. They'll be more aware of the world around them. And I think that what they're going to bring is they're going to bring a new age with all of the technology that is just starting to avalanche into our culture and the world as a whole. So I'm not worried a bit. As, As long as we can maintain the the societal culture, which is what we're really struggling over right now, I think that all of these emerging leaders will, will make a, a bigger, better America and hopefully influence the world in the same, Parker. I, I agree with you, and, I, and I'm glad that we share that perspective because I know a lot of people potentially would disagree. Some of the technology side of things that uh, and the potential negatives, but I agree. I think a lot of what I've seen a lot of the work that I see people around me doing and using technology for a positive, you know, even just something as simple as this, where you and I, states apart, are sharing a conversation and providing value about leadership and growth. I think technology has incredible potential and incredible value to bring, and especially for young people, because even this, this platform is going to be reaching young people, all uh, mobily, all using technology. It will. I I just want to add one thing is that for all the downsides of the COVID-19 virus, one of the things it has shown is that there are a number of platforms 
and related companies that will thrive in this environment and they'll be able to actually expand and accelerate their operations. I think Red Hat will be one of them because they're not tied to a building. There's no brick and mortar involved. And this truly is part of the digital revolution, is that you're not confined by a geographic location. You may be confined physically because you can't go out and interact the way you used to, but as you put it, Parker, you and I are connected from six states away now and we're still communicating as effectively, if not better than we did before. I relocated. So it's a brave new world. Back to you. I was going to say, and it's brilliant that you just before all, I mean, a few years, right? But before all of this had seen the value of being able to work states away from where your team is or, you know, globally, essentially. I mean, my team, I'm working at LexisNexis doing a global communications internship. Same exact thing. Dayton, New York City, London, you know, Australia, all of these different locations and just learning the value of how to communicate cross-culturally, cross-states, cross-time. I mean, there there's so much value with it. And I think people are learning that. It's something I'm trying to really connect is just for young people, like technology is breaking all of these barriers. Not only that, but the companies, by engaging in this manner, having a degree in HR, having been a, a hiring manager for well over 35 years in and out of the military, and my wife was an HR um, recruiter, This type of environment allows companies to just completely expand their scope of where they hire people, what country they hire people from. It breaks down all the barriers. It really, really does. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much just for sharing all of these ideas. I mean, talking from Marines to business to young, uh, like I I love everything that we shared and and your answers were spot on. Um, I think just for me personally, uh, a lot of value. I'm going to be listening back through this several times, taking notes because I really do think, and for my listeners who have been keeping up with it, I'm making a, a real effort to be pulling people from all different backgrounds because like what you emphasized earlier the value of perspective even though right i haven't lived these these experiences just hearing and hearing the stories and being able to share the perspective i I really appreciate um everything that you shared today well thank you parker and i've really appreciated the opportunity to share this with you well everyone as usual Make sure to follow at Taking a Breath Podcast on Instagram. We're going to have clips from this interview and clips from the coming interviews and uh, whatever platform you're listening or watching on. Make sure to subscribe and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Taking a Breath Podcast with Parker Mays. 